Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Try as I may, I could never explain what I hear when you don't Hello, everyone, and welcome to Intersections Matches Talk Radio, a show for people who resonate with Mahatma Gandhi's quote, learn like you're going to live forever, live like you're going to die tomorrow. This is Chespina, your host and the founder of Intersections Match, a global personalized matchmaking and coaching company for successful and commitment-minded singles. I'm very excited to welcome to today's show, Dr. Terry Orbach. Dr. Orbach, also known as the Love Doctor, is a world-renowned relationship expert, author, speaker, therapist, coach, distinguished professor at Oakland University, research scientist at the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research and Media Personalities. She's also the director of a landmark study funded by the National Institutes of Health where she's been following the same couples for over 30 years. Her two best-selling books are Five Simple Steps to Take Your Marriage from Good to Great and Finding Love Again, Six Simple Steps to a New and Happy Relationship. Welcome, Terry. Hello, Jasbina. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. And now in your book, Finding Love Again, you discuss several myths which science refutes. Let's just discuss a few of them. One concerns the concept of rebound relationships. Tell us what the myth there is. Well, the myth is that rebound relationships are not good relationships or healthy relationships. And rebound relationships assume then that you're really not ready for a good or healthy relationship again. And that's not true, Jasbina, because what we know when we look at science is that everyone has a different time period in terms of whether or not they're really ready for a relationship. And so some people emotionally separate from a relationship while they're still physically in the relationship, Jasbina. And then once the relationship ends and they're no longer with that person, living with that person, for example, they're immediately ready for a new relationship. They've separated emotionally. They're ready. Other people, though, are not ready for a new relationship when it physically ends. And so they need time to process. They need time to think about what they really need or want in another relationship. And so it would be good for them to wait. It would be good for them to date and figure out what they need or want. So what we know is that it is an individual difference between whether or not you're ready to date after you separate another relationship or not. Very, very helpful. Thank you. And I have seen that variety. So let me ask you, have you seen any patterns as to gender in this regard in terms of whether men or women tend, right, tend to need um, the physical separation or tend to need any, any, any gender-based differences or not really? Yes, no, that's a great question, Jasmina. There are some gender differences. 
women, we know when we look at studies, tend to emotionally separate when they're still in a previous relationship. Men, mm-hmm. on the other hand, tend to need the physical separation, the relationship actually ending before they begin to emotionally separate. And again, when we look at research, when we look at studies, Jasmine, we're really talking about 80% of the people. And so if listeners are either on either side of what I talk about when I say studies or research, it doesn't mean that you're wrong or something's wrong with you. It just means that you're not in the norm, and there's nothing wrong with that. So when we're talking about science or research, it's about 80%. I love that insight because, um, you know, as I always say, these are guidelines. These are not rules because, you know, we there are exceptions to every rule. So I love that qualification with respect to, you know, as people sort through this um, insights and then apply it to themselves. So super helpful. One, um, another myth, and your book has a lot, but let's, um, one other myth is concerning conflict and healthy relationships. So tell us about that. What's the myth there surrounding? Yes, and, and this is a myth, common sense notion, I think, Jasbina, that a lot of people hold. And the myth is that conflict is negative. It's bad for a relationship. So if you and your partner are disagreeing, have all these differences, have conflict, that somehow you're not in a good relationship or something is wrong with your relationship. It's a myth. It's a common sense notion. When I look at my own research, and I should say I've been following these same couples, 373 couples, for over 30 years now. And when I look at the couples, inevitably, they have conflict over time. And there were 12 couples in year one who said, we never fight, we never have conflict. None of those 12 couples were still together in year three. So As these couples go over time, as these couples have a long-term relationship, they inevitably have conflict. And it is not predictive of the health, well-being, and happiness of the relationship. And it is not predictive of who stays together or who does not. Instead, Jasbina, what my study shows is that It's how you deal with the conflict that predicts staying together or not and happiness. So that those couples who do conflict well, they listen to one another, they validate one another, they don't storm off, they don't call each other names. If they handle the conflict well, that predicts who stays together and who doesn't. And those couples who have conflict and don't do it well, that predicts not being together over the long haul. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Terry. Very helpful. And I love that, you know, as a matchmaker, one of the questions I I like to ask is, how would you describe your your parents' relationship? And and, and as part of that, as a sub-question, I like to ask, how did your parents resolve? How do you remember your parents resolving conflict? So, Super, um, that's a good helpful. yeah. That's a good question because you know hmm. I um, have talked to many clients as well, and when they don't see their parents have conflict in front of them and resolve it well, that needs to both happen. Then, when they're in a relationship and they have their first disagreement, they automatically assume that the relationship isn't okay or they're in trouble, mm-hmm. and so seeing parents or or others in our childhood argue, have disagreements, have differences, and resolve them well is so important for children. Very helpful. Now, let's touch on one more of these myths. And uh, what's the myth? Well, speaking of getting in the relationship, right? Um, what's the myth concerning this idea of getting it all out there? as soon as possible when dating, sharing everything about oneself as a kind of a putting people on notice kind of an idea. Tell us about that. 
Where's the myth there? Right. I think the myth, Jasbina, is that you share everything really early so that the person either knows you or if they don't like something, they know it early. And that's Mm -hmm. a myth. You should not disclose everything on the first date or too soon. What we know, science shows, is that you should gradually disclose things about yourself. I talk to my clients about thinking of themselves as a book, and they want to share one chapter at a time. Because what happens is, is that if you share everything, the goods, the bads, about your divorce, about your previous relationships, you just inundate them. I call it almost vomiting up you. And I understand why you want to do that. But if you vomit up you so quickly, people become overwhelmed and they run. It's almost like you want to think about being on a plane and you're sitting down and maybe the plane ride is six, eight hours. And all of a sudden, this person next to you begins talking about themselves and telling you everything, private, personal. What do you feel? Ask yourself. Well, most people will say, oh, no, I want to put on my headphones. I want to run, right? And that's that feeling of disclosing too much to a partner on a first date or too early. That person wants to run. I love that. You know, I, uh, you know, Terry, I love your uh, plane analogy as, as well as your book analogy. What I like to, you know, my favorite analogy I like to use with clients is the onion analogy. And I say you can hack the onion or you can peel back the layers slowly by slowly. Mm. So it seems similar to your, um, and I, I mean, personally, I'm a pizza and onions are like my favorite combination. <laughs> so it kind of has a good, 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 uh, good flavor to me. So um, now speaking of this, and staying together. So tell us about what studies, what the science says regarding, you know, whether or not there's a relationship between sharing the same socioeconomic status, personality, race, religion, and relationship longevity. What is there a relationship there? Tell us about that. Well, there turns out not to be a relationship between similarity and all of those traits that you just mentioned, whether it's socioeconomic status or personality, race, religion, or relation and relationship longevity. Instead, what we find, and I can talk about my study in particular, that it is similarity in underlying values and attitudes. Now, Sometimes when you have two partners and they have the same socioeconomic status or they have the same race or they have the same religion, they share underlying values or attitudes. And so that is what's important rather than those other traits. And so what you want to do if you're thinking about finding a compatible partner is someone who shares those underlying key life values. For example, someone who has the same value about family or children. Like if you're thinking about the holidays or a party, do you want family to attend? Do you want to live close to your family? Or if we're talking about similarity in terms of underlying values about religion or spirituality, do you have somebody or do you have a partner that you're dating that shares how much you want to go to church or synagogue or how much you want to infuse those beliefs into your lifestyle? So it's not the actual traits like SES or race, but it's these underlying values and attitudes that are so important to predicting staying together over the long haul. I love that. I like to, uh, you know, you know, I love that that is something that has been shown in Western science because what I like to do is say kind of blend the best of the East and the West. And that focus on values is something that you know, I think historically has been there in the um, in a lot of the Eastern traditions. So that's the that's the piece from the East I like to put in. So I love that that is also also in the West, right? Also been shown um, in the West. 
our um, you know, Terry, our female clients tend to be tend to be highly educated, and our male clients generally generally they seek that both that beauty and the brains. They want it all, right? The beauty and the brains. So, what um, what does science? What does your study say regarding a woman's level of education? And the chances of the relationship lasting and the relationship longevity. Any any correlations there at all? Or yes, Jasmine, it's not actually even a correlation. It's a cause and an effect, which is fascinating. Even better. (laughs) Yeah, even better. I agree, right? Because otherwise, we don't know the relationship direction. And that's why I love this finding. It was surprising in my study as I followed these couples over time. When the females had a higher education, that couple was more likely to stay together over time. And I know this is a very controversial finding, and it's not always the same in other studies. But what I found is that women who are highly educated, one, were much more likely to have opportunities to, you know, seek self-help, read books, get information to improve their relationship. They were more likely to talk to other people, go into counseling, read self-help books, go to religious advisors, and that helped the relationship. They were also more likely then to use the strategies that they found as they, you know, went outside the relationship to get help if there were issues or problems or just to have a tune-up or improve the relationship, which then, in fact, helped the relationship over time. So highly educated women or the more education a woman has, the more likely the relationship is to stay over the long haul. Excellent. Now let's go even. Let's let's take that in a different in a different direction for the for the highly educated women that that are out there, and they say, okay, you know, I actually what I'd like now is an egalitarian partnership. I I I want to do a um, sort of a modern spin, right, on on um, on having a family together and and building a life together. So what are what are some of the best ways for a single heterosexual woman who wants an egalitarian, has an attitude towards an egalitarian partnership, to look to filter as she dates. Any any tips, any suggestions for that woman? Right. Well, first of all, it's a great question. And I can say that when we look at studies in general out there, men, um, heterosexual men, are doing more around the house than ever before. So there have been significant changes in terms of who does what around the house. And men are significantly more likely to do more around the house and with childcare, I should say. Um, but women continue to do the majority of work um, with children and around the home. So I just say that in general so that women and even highly educated women know that. On the other hand, your question is great. How can heterosexual women... Um, filter out dates so they get a more egalitarian or a more equitable partnership. I think first, and there are two tips that I have. First, I think um, women in general should feel comfortable and secure discussing this topic with their dates. I, I wouldn't just be to discuss it on the first date or even the first few dates, but after that, I think it's okay to ask um, about that, about what they feel in terms of that value, in terms of having an egalitarian partnership, whether it be around the home or outside the home. What do they feel? What do they think about um, in terms of children and who would do what around the house and with the children. So discussing that topic and asking questions is very important. Now, the second tip is for if the woman does not feel comfortable or she doesn't want to do it yet in that partnership or she wants to know it earlier. I think then observing 
is very important. Watch what the male is doing and thinking and saying. Um, how is he treating the wait staff? How is he talking about his mother or his sister or his niece and what they're doing around the home? And friends, how they're working outside the home or not, or how he feels about the man in that partnership staying home and the woman working outside the home. Bring up examples or even when you're watching a movie with this male heterosexual partner and you might be watching the movie and something comes up about a woman working outside the home if she has children or a man doing something around the home. Ask a question. What do you think of that? Would you do that? So use movies or sitcoms or television shows or examples in his life to ask questions. I love that in context, right? Not making sort of a, a summit about it, but doing it in a context. And uh, you know, and it, it, you know, as you say, when it comes to when it comes to men, I always tell our clients, right, that our female clients that, you know, pay attention to the actions um, versus just the words and, and what you just said, right. Encapsulated that. Um, so now let's shift gears and, and let's talk about some gender differences when it comes to, um, when it comes to a number of things yet we, we encounter in dating and relationships. Um, one of which is the role of physical attraction, right. in selecting partners, you know, I, you know, we all understand it's, you know, we all have friends and the attraction is an important piece, but tell us whether there are any gender differences with respect to that. Right. Well, first of all, I should say that physical attraction or how a person looks is important to both men and women. So mm -hmm. when we look at why people choose who they do, both men and women, physical attraction and how they look beauty is important. So that's across the board. However, women tend to underestimate the importance of physical attractiveness, Jasmina, and men overestimate the importance. So when you ask men and women, like, you know, give me the first 10 qualities that are important to you about who you date or who you have a relationship with, men will put physical attractiveness up on the top, like in the first five. And when you ask women, they put it down in the last five, if they even put it down. And I think that has a lot to do with what men and women learn, Jasmina, in cultures or different cultures about whether or not they should say or report that physical attractiveness or how a person looks is important. And so I think women have been taught, again, not all women, not all cultures, but in general, women have been taught that they should rely on other things and they should rely on humor or if a, a man has a job or how much money he makes or is he emotionally mature. So she, woman, puts that up higher than, and physical attractiveness lower. Men, on the other hand, have been taught, again, in general, that physical attractiveness is more important. So he reports it at the top. But again, it's important to both. Excellent. And you know what's funny, too, is once in a while, I don't get this a lot, actually, because I'm, I'm very clear that I operate a very judgment-free zone. But once in a while, men and women will, you know, when I ask, when this comes up with with us, with our matchmaking clients, it'll almost mm -hmm. be a, um, a preface that I don't want to seem shallow, but a, B, and C, T. Yeah. And it's so funny because it's like you, you just said something to the effect of what we're allowed, what culturally, what we're permitted to say or something to that effect, right? So that, that just speaks to that, that some people exactly. feel like maybe they need to edit themselves a bit, uh, you know, in terms of their public right persona, what they're saying. But all right. So when, um, when it comes to how sex relates to emotional connection, any any gender differences there? Again, understanding right the eighty percent and the twenty percent, but generally speaking, any any gender differences relating to that? 
Right. Well, I can look at the findings from my study, and in general, as you said, about that 80%, um, the connection between sex and emotions um, is opposite for men and women. So when we look at the husbands, and these are husbands and wives, and they're both heterosexual, obviously, um, and <laughs> we, <laughs> or at least they report that they are, um, um, that the connection is opposite. So when we ask the women or the wives in our study, they report that they would like an emotional connection before they feel a physical connection or before they desire a physical connection. So the women in the study will talk about how they want to talk to their husband or to their male partner. And the more talk, the more they feel connected emotionally, the more amorous they feel, the more they want a physical or a sexual connection. On the other hand, when we spoke to the males or when we speak and talk to the males, they're the opposite. They say that oftentimes they will want a physical or a sexual connection in order to feel that emotional connection. Um, And there was a particular couple that I always loved to give um, a story about. And the man had experienced a loss of a parent. And when he went to his wife, he told her that he wanted sex so he could feel better about this loss. And she reports, because we have the couples tell stories of their relationship and how they feel with one another, she said that when he came to her after the death of a parent and he wanted sex, she was surprised and almost shocked. And she said, honey, can, can we talk about how you're, you know, expressing this loss and how you're grieving? Let's talk about how you feel before we have sex. And he said, I don't want to. I want sex because that's the way that I feel a connection to you and that I will feel better about the loss. And so such a illustrative example of the differences between men and women, at least in my study, on the connection between emotional connection and physical connection. That is profound. And it, you know, how, what kind of a, a joke, right, on, on us heterosexuals, that, right? It's almost like we're hardwired that in terms of the, um, the reverse, and how we see the sex and the emotional connection. It's uh, interesting. So along those lines, what about communication style? Is, does the same sort of, uh, you know, um, trick and put play out in terms of differences between men and women when it comes to communication? Right. Well, there are gender differences. And I like to always say, because we're talking about all these gender differences, Jasbina, mm-hmm. um, that... As a psychologist, when we look at all kinds of social behaviors, there are not gender differences. And and research study after research study shows that when we look at all kinds of social behaviors, that there are more similarities than differences. But when it comes to relationships, Mm. I think we still find all of these gender differences. And so it's not like there are gender differences between men and women on all kinds of topics and areas in psychology. But in terms of relationships, we continue to find these gender differences. And there um, is a wonderful uh, communication studies scholar called Deborah Tannen, and she talks about these gender differences between men and women when it comes to relationships. And um, in my study, I confirmed what she found, and I can talk about that in a second, but first, let's talk about Deborah Tannen's research. She finds that when we look at men and women, men tend to do what we call report talk. They tend to talk to others in relationships um, as if they're describing information and they're giving information, like a report. This happened, that happened, that didn't, this did. Whereas when we look at women's communication style, 
in terms of relationships. And this is, by the way, relationships in general, not just romantic relationships. Women tend to do what we call rapport. Um, I want to gain a connection with you. So I'm going to tell you about my emotions. I am going to try to ask you questions and gain a connection. So it's report talk versus rapport talk. And I was fascinated by these gender differences. So in my study, as we looked at the couples over time and the singles over time, we asked them also about their communication style. And we had them talk to a partner, if they were with a partner, and looked at then the different styles. And among the married couples over time, we confirmed that men did report talk and women did rapport talk. And it was fascinating, Jasbina. They would talk about when they first met and became a couple, and the men would talk about where they met and what they ate and about the server and about looking around in the restaurant or the coffee shop or on a picnic. And the women instead would talk about the conversation that they had with him, the um, emotions that she felt when she first met him and she talked to him and how she went home and what happened afterwards and what she felt. And so we confirmed that men did report talk and women did rapport talk, which was fascinating, right? It is absolutely fascinating. And um, yes. It, it really is. It's kind of one of those where this education and this is so very important because if you don't have it, you almost think something's wrong with your relationship, right? Like how come, right. you know, you know, and you almost expect um, and women sometimes might expect guys to be kind of more like their girlfriends and, and same, right? Same with guys, you know, the, their women demand, you know, demands far greater than they're guys, it's very interesting. Exactly. You know, and I get a lot know? of my clients too, Jasmina, saying if they're a woman, um, a heterosexual woman, that, you know, they didn't like the the male date, that he should have been more emotive, he should have asked more questions. And the same with my male clients. She was too emotional. She didn't answer all of his questions. She wanted to, you know, talk about her emotions, her connections to other people. And so I think understanding that gender difference and that it has to do with the gender rather than the person is so very important. I agree. Absolutely. Now, when it now between the um, what you spoke of with respect to sex related to emotional connection and as well as the communication differences, I imagine right this is where you know even one place where con- like processing conflict becomes an important important skill right in in a relationship. So any any differences between you know men and women with respect to how we process conflict. Yes, and I think this is my most uh, important and the finding in my study that I like the most, Jasmina, is that there are differences between men and women in terms of processing conflict. And what we found following these couples over time is that women like to analyze conflict for at least two to three days, whereas men do conflict they let it go, and they're on to the next topic or next issue. And I can say that we did an exercise with the men and women separately. We had the men and women come into the laboratory, and we asked them three questions. Um, when was the last time you had conflict with your spouse, and what was the topic? And then um, third, so when was the last time you had conflict? I apologize. Second, what was the topic? And third, is it settled? And this is so fascinating. So we would have the husbands come in. And in general, again, the husbands would have a hard time figuring out, when was the last time I had conflict? You know, oh, I think it was last Tuesday. 
the topic was, you know, oh, who would let out the dogs or who would empty the dishwasher, and it's all over. It's been, you know, a few days. I have not even thought about it, and we settled it. The husband would leave, and the wife of the husband would come in, and she would automatically say, yesterday at 2 p.m., here's the topic, right? And and she would give detail after detail. But the most important thing she would say, Jasmina, is that the conflict or disagreement is not resolved. I'm continuing to think about it. So men and women have different meanings about conflict, and they process the conflict very differently. And, and we see this in all kinds of relationships. It's not just romantic relationships. We would ask the men and women about conflict with friends, conflict with in-laws, conflict with work colleagues, and the same kinds of gender differences would occur, that women are continuing to analyze it. And I would say, Jed Bina, I'm, I'm just like that. I like to process the conflict and think about it. What did I say to my best friend? Should I have said something differently? Should I go back and say something to her, right? And so it's in all relationships, women process conflict differently and than men. So fascinating. And now, now that we know this, what do we what do we do with it? Like, are there any tips to deal with these, you know, these pretty big differences when you think about it in terms of processing conflict? But any tips so that uh, men and women? Okay, so I know that, but now. What do I do with that? How can I work around that? Any any mm-hmm. suggestions, any tips for that? Well, I think the first really important tip is to understand the gender differences and that they exist. Because if the gender differences occur and we're a man or a woman and we're hoping that our partner processes conflict like us, then we're going to get frustrated. Then we're going to get disappointed and upset. And we know that frustration eats away at happiness in a relationship. So understanding and expecting those differences is the first really important tip. Again, because that then doesn't lead to frustration and then a decrease in happiness. Second, I think an important strategy is to know that when your partner is different than you, that then you can understand that partner's perspective. So if you're a heterosexual male and your female partner comes to you after two days, right, and says, I want to discuss what we were disagreeing about two days ago, you might breathe and think, before you say anything, what were we disagreeing about two days ago? Because if you automatically say, what? What were we disagreeing about? Rather than thinking about it and taking a few seconds, right, your partner is going to be upset. Understand that they've been processing it for almost two days. They've been thinking about it. You haven't, but they have. And opposite to that, if you're a heterosexual female and your male partner comes to you, right, or you go to your male partner and say, I want to talk about what we were disagreeing about two days ago, and they say to you, what were we disagreeing about? It doesn't mean that it wasn't important to them. Remember that they are processing conflict and disagreements differently. And so it's all about communication and understanding, I think, Jasmina, that miscommunication occurs a lot, that we interpret something in our framework, our approach differently. But it doesn't mean that they meant it or interpret it how we interpret it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. The interpretation more so than the actual event. And you know what else that your tip seems to reflect is, is almost a difference in, well, whether it be a difference in relationship needs or just addressing relationship needs, even if you don't share it. So building on that, 
any any gender differences between what men and women you know generally or fundamentally need from their partners with the understanding that all men and women right all men are not the same all women are not the same but in terms of in terms of gender any differences in what what their what their needs might be from from a well, I think if we're, if we're talking about needs being expectations, like their ideal notions of what should be in a relationship, we actually did not find any gender differences, Jasmina. Um, number one is trust. And that was true for men and women. So that need for a partner to be trustworthy and reliable and at least honest and predictable was so important to both men and women. And so that was fascinating. On the other hand, most individuals, most people, most partners don't know what they need, as you even suggested right now. And so it's so important for people to identify their own needs or expectations. So, and I encourage all the listeners to do this. So just ask yourself if you could think about an ideal relationship. What do you expect? What do you need to be there? And I would identify your top two expectations or needs and then share it with your partner so that they know your needs and expectations. Or even as you're dating someone, share those needs over time and then ask them, number three, what are their needs or expectations? Because what I found in my study over time is that there were no gender differences, one. Second, that partners do not have to be similar in terms of their needs or expectations. But three, knowing your partner's needs or expectations were significantly, or that was significantly predictive of who stayed together and who did not. So when you can say, you know, I know my partner needs X or my partner expects Y, that predicts who stays together and who doesn't over time. Right. Well, let's talk about, let's talk, go back to getting in these relationships. And what does, uh, what does science, what does your study say about, you know, who is generally more romantic? Women, men, any, any findings there? Yeah, well, this is very surprising again. When we look at other studies as well as my study, what we found is that men generally are more romantic in their beliefs than women. And so I think many people out there, I would say the majority of people out there, think the opposite. And so it's really a myth that women are more romantic in their beliefs than men because when we look at studies, that myth is dispelled. What we find is that men are more romantic in terms of they're more likely to believe in love at first sight than women. They're more likely to believe that love conquers all. And men are more likely to believe that you need love to have a commitment. And I'm not talking about lust because everybody comes back and says, well, of course, lust. I'm talking about love. So men in general, when we look at beliefs, not behaviors, but beliefs, tend to be more romantic. I love that distinction between beliefs and behaviors. And and I actually see that in our men, right? I see that kind of that yearning for that. Um, so that is so that is so interesting that science really bears out what we say anecdotally. I love that. Um, in terms I, of oh, go ahead, keep going. I was going to say something, and I think it goes back also, Jasmina, to the issue of dealing with conflict as well or problems. And so I think if you believe that love conquers all, if you're having conflict or a disagreement, I think that's why men can do conflict and then let it go and go on to the next. Because in general, they believe that love conquers all. And so I still love you. Mm -hmm. I'm still okay mm -hmm. in the relationship. Let's go forward. Whereas 
women, I think in general, want to address the conflict, want to figure out the disagreement um, so that they can continue to feel good and love in the relationship. Ah, that is fascinating because that actually, well, we could go all over with this, but that actually sort of speaks to, you know, men actually the commitment, you know, some, I think some women have a misunderstanding where they think men are commitment folks can't commit, but actually, right. That shows a pretty high degree of commitment to a relationship. It's almost like this idea we were meant to be and right. Love conquers all. And we're in this for the long term, which is, that is commitment, right? So that, that's fascinating. Um, right. I love that. Let's talk about, um, Falling in love, actually, right? So, what? If any, did your study find anything there in terms of, you know, who do men or women tend to fall in love faster? Any mm-hmm. Well, my study, yeah, my study, along with other studies, have shown that men tend to fall in love faster than women. And so, mm-hmm. as women, we are much more selective in who we give our love to. So we're cautious. But once we fall, we fall. We fall hard (laughs) as women. But again, men fall faster. And so as we follow these couples over time, as we follow the singles over time, men will report that they're in love faster. And and women will wait. They'll they'll check the boxes, right? And mm-hmm. then after the men have, you know, been checked on the boxes, and again, I'm studying heterosexual women and men, um, then they will report that they love, which is fascinating because, again, Jasbina, I think if you asked most people out there, they would say that women fall in love faster than men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And I know we're, we're getting close to time and I have, I want to, I want to find two more things out if we can. So let me ask you about navigating those first couple of days, right? So what does science say about, you know, this is in the matchmaking space, you know, in terms of showing pictures is a, is a big question. So what does science say about seeing a, uh, a date's picture you know, before the date, seeing, uh, you know, prospective date's picture. Does science have anything to say about any pros and cons to that? Right. Well, I think um, science would not suggest <laughs> that you show a date's mm-hmm. pictures, a picture before you set up a date. And I understand okay. that is not how people work um, in terms of most people wanting to see what someone looks like. And, but, and but we work that way. I'm going to cut that. We work that way. So I want to find out why, because we work that way because, you know, because largely because of what you said, but I want to hear it from you. Why does science say that? Why are they saying, you know, maybe maybe don't show the picture if you want to go pure science route. So why does science say right. that? Because I think science says that when you show a picture, it sets up mm-hmm. certain expectations. And when you set up certain expectations and then you go out on a date, you don't see all the information in front of you in the same mm-hmm. way. And this is mm-hmm. called the confirmation bias. So that mm-hmm. when we see someone and we form an impression, we form expectations, then we only see what will confirm our initial expectations and our initial impressions so that we don't Mm. see things that maybe we should see. We don't see Mm. things that maybe are not good about this person or Mm -hmm. are not compatible with us. And so that sets up a situation where perhaps in the future we are bound to get frustrated and disappointed. And we are bound to then get in relationships with people who might not be compatible, but who we didn't see the signs, the red flags early because of that seeing of a picture. Well, we could talk for hours, but I have yes. one more question, and then we are going to we are going to uh, we are going to um, stop. So, what um, what does science say about the pros and cons of going on a 
second or third date when, you know, you just don't know if you feel those sparks on the first date. I have anything to say on that one. Well, you know, that's a hard question, Jasbina, mm-hmm. but in terms yeah. of my own research, okay. I would say that you should go out on a second or third date, um, that relationships grow and develop over time. First of all, people can be nervous on first dates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. People can sure. not bring their best selves to the first dates. And so I always encourage people then to give people a second chance or a third chance. Second, I think that relationships can develop as you get to know more about that person. I know chemistry is important. I know physical attraction is so important. And you have to feel the chemistry, but sometimes you want to find what is below the physical uh, person, right? You want to know their values. You want to know what they do. You want to know how they're compatible with you. Those are the things that predict a happy, healthy relationship over time. So sometimes chemistry can occur on a second or third date because you learn you're compatible, because humor comes out, because you have common compatibility, right? And that needs Mm -hmm. to either develop or occur as you ask more questions over time. Ah, uh, the book and the onion, right? So thank yes, you, Terry. very good. <laughs> I, I, I so appreciate you sharing your valuable insights with us. And how can the listeners find you if they'd like to learn more, if they'd like to find you? How can they do so? Right. My website, Jasbina, is Dr. Terry, D-R. T-E-R-R-I, thelovedoctor.com. And that's all one word, Dr. Terry, thelovedoctor.com. And thank you so much for having me on your program, Jasmina. I loved talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Terry. And uh, for our listeners, in case you joined us late and would like to share this show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that today's radio show will be archived and available as a podcast on Intersections Match's website, which is intersectionsmatch.com. Be well, everyone. Take care. Try as I may, I could never explain what I Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.